So next up, we've got a bit of an update on actuarial guidance. What does it mean, the new actuarial control function, and obviously the, the practicing certificate that goes along with that. Uh, our presenters are Lisa Pine. So Lisa is the chief actuary of uh, Old Mutual uh, Insure Group. One, some of her previous roles were general, general manager, um, actuarial at Credit Guarantee Insurance Corporation. Uh, she was a founder and managing director at Willis Retails Watson, South Africa. Uh, and she was also a director at QED uh, Actuaries and Consultants. Lisa has been previously the ASA STIC chair, chairperson, and she currently chairs the Professional Guidance Committee, which obviously ties in nice with this talk. And the second presenter is Jaku van der Merwe. So Jaku is a director at Deloitte, and he heads up the non-live practice area for the South African business. He's got over 14 years industry experience across all the various uh, types of non-life uh, companies, both locally and uh, some abroad companies as well. Uh, and Yaku is currently our stick uh, chair chairman as well. So please welcome him. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, we are here to give you a quick feedback. We only have a 30-minute slot, and I realize we're a bit short in time, so we'll do our best to keep it quick and to uh, give opportunity for questions to the extent that there may be. Um, just as a, a quick overview, I will talk to you briefly about practicing certificates, um, and Lisa will follow up with the guidance notes. Both of these areas, as you'll see in a minute, sit within the Professional Guidance Subcommittee for STIC, which Lisa is the, um, the chair of. So I think it's worth maybe just starting at the top. So the Actuarial Society of South Africa has a number of practice areas. If you look at their website, you'll see the following nine practice areas listed, um, of which we are number eight. Not ranked by alphabetically or size or anything, but I'll give you a clue as to what the sorting algorithm there was. The reason you are here today is because of the short-term insurance committee. So um, within the short-term insurance committee, we've got a number of, uh, we've got a formalized membership structure and a number of individuals serving on the committee. Firstly, there's the chair, the secretary, and then our actuarial office liaison. We have eight specific subcommittees, um, CPD, which Sias looks after, which is the chairperson of, and we have to thank Sias and his team for all the hard work and effort that went into actually putting today together for you. If you've never been involved in organizing an event like this, um, you've got something to experience still on your bucket list. It's an inordinate amount of effort, and I just want to say thanks to the guys for putting it together. Also on that list of subcommittees, we've got research, education, legislation with a recently spun out ad hoc committee um, for IFRS 17 being a, a very important topic for us, followed by communications, emerging matters is a, a new one, and most relevant for this talk, that of professional guidance with Lisa as the chair. We also have a number of industry representatives, um, four industry representatives, two for large insurers, one for reinsurance, and one for, let's call it specialist slash niche insurance. We also have representation on there from SAIA, SAICA, the Prudential Authority, and I'm very pleased to say most recently we've also created a dedicated role for ASABA. Okay, drilling into professional guidance, 
um, we have two work streams or sub-subcommittees, if you like, within professional guidance. Guidance notes, which Lisa will talk to you about, and practicing certificates. So, with no, um, before I jump into practicing certificates, I thought I'd use my minute of fame up here just to promote stick uh, in my capacity as chair a little bit for you. Those structures are up on the screen, and the individuals who chair or look after those particular uh, roles are named there for you. They are desperately looking for support and assistance. Bear in mind that everyone who serves on stick does so on a voluntary basis in an attempt to serve you and the industry um, and the actual profession. So please, there are many bright minds and willing and able individuals out there and you can make a real difference in the industry by getting involved. There's a lot of interesting work to be done. Um, but it's also a fantastic way to network, build up your industry relations, credibility, and CV, as well as ticking the CPD box. So please look up there and look afterwards on the slide when it's made available to you, but see if there's anywhere you'd like to get involved. Right. Practicing certificates. So I want to preface this just by saying whatever you see here today is draft. Um, it's hot off the press, only came out of some of the committee meetings in the last week. But I think the right place to start is to say, okay, where have we come from? So the practicing certificate framework for short-term insurance in South Africa has, was largely put in place, copied off the life insurance framework, to cater for statutory roles, statutory actuaries or signing in a statutory capacity. Um, the bar, so, so you, there were two types of certificates, the general and a limited certificate. And a general certificate being something that enables you to sign off in a statutory capacity as a statutory actuary would for any insurer, for any class of business, for any type of business, for any size, scale, complexity, whether it's capital, reserving, pricing, whatever the case may be, as you can imagine, was a particularly onerous hurdle to cover. Um, and maybe from then I thought it also good to maybe just share with you just the stats as they currently stand. So the stick has processed has, yeah, has processed 60 applications um, over time. Um, 40 of those were unique because some of them were renewals. Um, in that time, in all the years, five have been declined. Okay? So maybe less than you might expect. Of them, seven have lapsed, uh, and this is uh, certificates where people maybe haven't renewed them simply because they didn't need them or they were no longer acting in those roles. I would hope that it's not because they forgot to, but they continue to work, but I'm sure time will tell. Which means we have 28 active short-term insurance practicing certificates currently in the industry for a, a number of insurers of 100 plus. 18 of those are general, in other words, unlimited, so they can sign anything for anyone. Um, and 10 of those, just about a third of them, are actually limited. Typically the limitations would be limited to reserving or maybe to a particular insurer. You know, if you've only ever worked on, say, for example, trade credit, that might be a good example why your certificate is only limited to that particular type of insurer. So I thought this was good to put up, and I think it's, it's a question that's often asked, and I think it's, uh, it's good for the industry to be aware of this. You'll see later there'll be even more transparency in terms of certificates and certificate holders going forward. Going forward, we obviously need to revise the criteria. Okay? The, the, the role of practicing certificate going forward is to cater for the role of head of actuarial function, which is a key person role. It's a very important stakeholder in the insurance. 
um, providing assurance to board, but clearly it's different um, from what was required in the past. You don't need to have built and calibrated, calibrated and parameterized an internal model for an IMAP process to be a half. Okay, so the role is different. It's that of governance and oversight. And the certificate framework needs to be relaxed. I use the word sort of reservedly, but relaxed to provide for this. We need to also make sure that we are consistent with life. We have one regulatory framework, one governance standard um, guiding us now, so it makes sense that we are consistent also in our approach. Um, and importantly, I'll talk to you about transitional arrangements because you know, flipping the switch on practicing certificates doesn't mean that overnight everyone just gets a PC. So a big issue, I guess, for the short-term industry as a very young, immature industry is that we've historically, we don't have the same years of experience and the same number of experienced individuals, um, and we want to promote people coming into the industry, getting the certificates, and actually, you know, getting, skilling them up into that role. So we've also put in place, or we're proposing to put in place some transitional arrangements that will make that uh, easier for members. Right, now into the juicy bits. Uh, I, it's quite small for me up here. I don't know, if, if you can't read, please be, feel free to go through it afterwards. Basically, who needs a PC? Well, basically, if you want to be a half in South Africa, you need practicing certificates. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about that now, but, but the, the Prudential Authority has alluded to the fact that you, they may need you to have a PC, but they were kind of a, a little bit loath to word that in explicitly into a, a, a standard. Um, the, the actual society, however, does require its members or does advise its members to get a practicing certificate if you want to act as half, and you can understand why. Um, you also need one if you want to act as a statutory actuary or an appointed actuary outside of South Africa, being a FASA, where there's no international actual member organization looking after that. So then we would expect you as, as one of our members to get a practicing certificate. Or interestingly, when you are reviewing the work of a HAF, so if you're, for example, looking at an internal model that a HAF has approved and reviewed and signed off, if you're going to be giving an opinion on the work of that HAF, I think it, it makes sense that you would also be expected to to meet that same hurdle that that individual has to meet. Um, and I guess, interestingly here, is if you're giving formal assurance to your board on internal or to the regulator on internal model approval process, that previous really high hurdle that we said in the past was a, was a blockage, we will want you to have a practicing certificate for that as well. We are not going to test whether you've met that requirement. Um, we, we expect the members who have um, certificates also, you know, to apply their own kind of thinking to that and to make sure they've got the necessary experience. Um, but that is not, you know, we don't want that to be an obstacle now to people to getting their practicing certificates. Okay. Specifically the criteria, are, you know, the general things like we don't want you to have disciplinary findings against you, we want you to acknowledge that you understand the code of conduct, the APNs, the acts, registered service provider, all of those sort of administrative requirements are there for good reason and they stand. Um, you have to be a fellow, a FASA, um, you, we would want you to have qualified in the short term unless you've got, you can show that you've got a good experience in short term. You know, I think there are a number of people who have qualified not as short term actuaries but have built up substantial experience. Um, we make provision for that as well. 
Um, and then obviously you've got to make sure your CPD affairs are in order. I mean, that is, that is an asset requirement of you as a fellow. That's not, uh, you know, to have your CPD in order is, is not a practicing specific thing. So you, that, if you want to be a fellow, it's a requirement in any event. Um, but we will also check that you at least have 10 years per annum in short term in the last three years, which if you think about it is less than an hour a month. So I think, you know, we'd be very hard pushed to demonstrate that you are you want to act as a short-term insurance hack if you haven't done at least one short-term hour per month of actual short-term work. So, so I think that should, in theory, for a half be a relatively low um, hurdle. Um, and then I think going forward, we would also look more to asset to try and vet and validate CPD and rely more on declarations by members um, for that purpose. You'll see I put there relevant experience, and that I put it there because it's always been historically an area where the committee, the approval committees have spent a lot of time vetting applications and that's where a lot of the, I guess, the meat sits. Um, so I want to drill into that in a little bit more detail. <clears throat> so appreciating that the role of HAF as a key control function head um, who gives assurance to board and the regulator is a substantial role, we want you to have a certain number of years of working experience. We want you to be qualified and, have, and to have worked for a number of years post-qualification. This has been put in place, and I mean, provided this is a draft, this has been put in place to align with what uh, is being done on the life side as well. Um, and actually then the requirement to have years of working experience with another suitably qualified person is still there, but it's, uh, it's been changed from four years down to three years. Now, I get a question a lot saying, well, you know, does that mean um, I need to have worked with another practicing certificate holder because that's the requirement on the life side? No. We changed that requirement a number of years ago to say suitably qualified. So it doesn't have to be someone who holds a practicing certificate. It needs to be someone that's suitably qualified. In other words, has also substantial amounts of experience in short-term insurance um, by way of example. And, and that was also introduced to also to make it easier for members to get um, that recommendation. And then we would like you to at least be able to demonstrate that if you've got suitable working experience, that you know, like substantially, a lot of it relates to South African insurers. And this is a South African. We're issuing it for South African members. It's a South African um, role, the half role that we are uh, providing this the certificate for. And so rightly I think it makes sense that, you know, having experience of the South African industry is also relevant. We talk about the South African Acts, the APNs, so it, I mean that all is consistent. Okay, as was before the case, the committees can ask you for additional evidence uh, and that's really because we get such a variation of submissions. Some people will say, I've done everything for everyone, please give me a certificate, and some other people give you a 20-page report say, saying, you know, I've worked on copulas, I've done this, I've done that. So, you know, in some cases it's necessary to ask for more evidence. What we are doing now, and I think, and I hope, and I feel that this will be something that will really aid the process, is we are also, we've proposed and we're building in a set of sample questions to guide the applicants and the people giving the reference on the types of questions that we would like them to be able to answer. The kinds of questions that, that an approval committee would put to you. Um, and those would be things like, 
give us, you know, there'll be, it's, it's actually sort of two or three pages long, but here's some examples of the technical kind of questions we'd like you to be able to answer to show technical depth and breadth. Um, things around your role providing oversight um, and assurance, um, as well as your professional responsibility and accountability. Um, the idea being to establish whether you, you know, it's one thing having been able to calibrate a really complex model, but have you ever taken responsibility for that at board level? And have you ever engaged with executives and boards on those things? Because that's what's expected of you um, in this role. And then equally so for the actually providing the supporting letter, um, we give some guidance around what that support actually relates to. It's the kind of roles, responsibilities, is it relevant working experience, um, and does it, does it include some degree of regulatory interaction and, and responsibility, or uh, I mean, you know, interaction with the regulator? Let me put it that way. So this has all been built in into the revised framework in an attempt to make it easier, um, so that applicants can preempt the kind of questions they might get. Um, so the next point is then, okay, what form will those certificates take? So I've mentioned that the idea is to, we want to lower the, the level of the hurdle to make it easier for members, because there are definitely a lot of members who, who are quite um, suitable and, and suitably experienced to be HAFs, but would not under the previous uh, set of requirements qualified for a general certificate. So we, we're revising the requirements to, in order to let those individuals also get certificates. From a um, terminology point of view, we're still going to just have a general, well, this is a draft, we'll have a general certificate. And if it needs to be limited, so if, you, if your experience as a half would not enable you, for example, to work on a cell captive business, it could be limited. But the idea is that you apply for one certificate um, with a lower hurdle than it was in the past and only limited if it's necessary given your specifics. Okay. The general certificate, I want to just again stress and re-emphasize, does not uh, require you to um, have built, calibrated and take ownership and responsibility for internal capital models as you might imagine in the IMAP process. It was a requirement of the past, it will not be a requirement of the future. Not, not for the HAF certificate because that's not, strictly speaking, required of the HAF role. The application process, uh, really there'll be initial and renewal certificates um, and it'll go to ASA through its committee and they will issue the certificates. Um, we'll you know, just also maybe try and remind members to renew their certificates prior to expiry. There are sometimes cases where people forget that their certificates have expired and then there's a bit of a mad rush at the end to try and get these things in place uh, without putting you at risk as the member. Again, four years validity, and what's different here is that the life assurance um, industry have maintained a public register of who has practicing certificates. Uh, we will be doing the same thing going forward. So there's no real reason to keep that secret, but uh, it's not something that was previously published by STIC, but we will make that list available going forward. Um, I think for insurers and employers looking for those individuals as well, that's, I think that's, it's good to know. I'm conscious that I'm taking up maybe more time than I'm supposed to, um, but this is, I think this will be very important and relevant to you. So transitional arrangements, okay. So on the life side, 
it's a lot simpler. There are, every single insurer has a statutory actuary. Um, and there's generally a process uh, of converting those appointments so that those individuals are now taking on a half role because it is different. We don't have that same luxury in short term. Not all of you as short term insurance insurers have had statutory actuaries. One or two maybe, but very few have had statutory actuaries in the past. And we do, as you saw, we've got um, too few people who currently hold practicing certificates. And even so, even if we lower the bar and open up the application, there are not that many experienced short-term actuaries. And to get all these people issued with certificates overnight is practically impossible. So what, what's our reason for doing this? Well, given that, we want to make it, we want to encourage the short-term insurance industry to get people through with relevant experience. We want to um, promote this practice area within the industry. But at the same time as the actuarial society, we have a responsibility to oversee and guide and look after the, the level of professional um, behavior by our members in the industry. So we also don't want to um, open it completely so that, you know, in theory, we're endorsing someone who comes out of varsity with six months of experience um, who is, can call themselves an actuarial individual to go and take on the role of half because the board of the insurer may not be appropriately skilled to to vet that person's qualification. Clearly, you, that would be an unacceptable uh, position to be in. So the idea here is to put in some relatively automated, automatic rules um, so that for the next year or so, um, you can get a transitional practicing certificate um, to take on the role of the half if you need to for, for your business, um, but with some at least some basic minimum criteria. The important bottom line of this is that if you apply for this practicing certificate, the committee is not going to go through a vetting process to vet your CPD. They're not going to vet your experience and ask you, have you done this for that insurer? What methods have you used? They are not going to test and, and, and drill into it into that degree. We are going to rely to, on, on the applicant to answer affirmatively to a number of questions. It'll be things like, have you worked for four years at least? Um, have you got two years of experience at least post-qualification? Is your CPD in order and have you done at least 10 hours of short term in the year? Um, do you have some sort of professional or unprofessional conduct finding against you? Um, you know, sort of the, those basic admin questions. If the member answers yes to all of those, he or she will get a transitional practicing certificate. Um, and will be able to take on the role of half under that transitional period with that certificate. Um, you would probably have noticed that the APN 106.403 came out in the last week and it says that the, the practicing certificate requirements will not be in full force for a period. This is what it means. Right? So it's not in full force. Uh, we just have some basic requirements in, in there just to make sure that, you know, like I said, you don't have a, you know, a fourth year student stepping into the role with no real working experience. And basically you just need to get this, this uh, you know, certificate issued, by, uh, which is basically a matter of minutes and it's issued, um, and that enables you to take on that role. We do then how obviously however, encourage and ask you to go and get your proper certificate um, within a year so that you can actually then, you know, fulfill that requirement completely when it becomes effective. That's me.
I think there'll be questions, but I'm happy to take them at the end. Thank you, Yako. Um, hello, everyone. Um, so I'm going to speak to you about. Oh, whoops. Um, I'm going to speak to you about the professional guidance that we've been working on over the past couple of years. Um, there are three guidance notes um, uh, uh, that we've been developing: APN 403, 106, uh, 401, and 402. Um, so. Um, the one we've spent most time and energy on, and it it's really has been very hard work, is APN 403, which deals with the head of the actuarial uh, function for South African insurers, and, and Yako referred to um, the practicing certificate requirements for that. So that actually became effective last Friday, and it's the first time we've had a, a joint um, APN with the Life Insurance Committee. Um, and, and I think that may we may be doing work, more work uh, together with them going forward and trying to achieve more commonality in standards. Um, so um, the role of the HAF is very much in its, uh, I think, in its ad adolescence in, for South African short-term insurers in, in particular. Some may say even younger than an adolescent. And, and like a teenager struggling to uh, find their new role in, in society and in the world, there are many questions that we've, we've been grappling with. So who am I? Um, how do I fit in? How independent I, am I? Uh, what qualifications do I need? Um, what can I learn from my peer group? And do I have to do everything myself, or, or can I rely on others? So to start answering these questions, the first, uh, the, the first place we look is our big brother, um, in other words, the regulator in this case. And um, we can look at um, the past and the development of, of the, the HAF role. So, um, at pre-SAM, we had the statutory actuary, which was very much a, an established role for life insurance companies, but um, less so for short-term insurers. Short-term insurers only really had a statutory actuary in very particular circumstances, for example, where um, we needed to certify reserving on, on an alternative method to what was prescribed. Um, and then along came SAM, and... Uh, there were four uh, mandatory control functions introduced, of which the head of actuarial control, or the HEC, uh, was one of them. Um, a bit scary, <laughs> a bit of a scary hack, um, acronym, the HEC. Um, but at that stage, actually, for uh, non-life insurers, for short-term insurers, bearing in mind the shortage of, quali of uh, appropriately experienced actuaries at the time, um, it wasn't compulsory, although many companies actually did go ahead and, and appoint a hack. Um, then um, SAM was actually implemented uh, 1st of uh, July this year, and um, in the SAM Prudential Standards, in particular um, GOR 3 and GOR 4, um, the, um, are defined the requirements for the head of actuarial control function. And, um, and, in this, and, and we now call the HEF, um, which I think is much more positive sounding. That sounds more determined. I have to do this as opposed to um, the HEC. <laughs> um, so, so that's our regulatory framework. And um, the intention of APN 403 is to actually flesh out our interpretation um, of those regulations. So initially, the Life Assurance Committee and the Short-Term Insurance Committee were developing our, our um, parallel guidance on how to interpret, how to interpret the, the HEF requirements. 
Um, we felt that initially that we would develop um, independently because we were under very, uh, very uh, tight time constraints at the time. And also because the, the life statutory actuary role was already so mature, uh, we felt it went beyond what was actually required in terms of the HAF role. Um, so actually a couple of years ago at this conference we presented our initial independent draft of APN 403 and then Sam was, uh, the implementation was Sam, of SAM was delayed and uh, the regulator actually approached uh, ESSA to, to try and please combine these two notes. Um, so we put an enormous amount of work in put, working with the Life Assurance Committee to, um, and eventually produced uh, the, the APN 403, which was published last week. And just by the way, um, just look out for the group guidance um, for the group HEF role, which is, which is, going to be, which, um, is expected to come out towards the end of the year. So um, just to quickly give you an overview, the contents of APN uh, 403-106 are here. I don't have time to go through everything, but I'll just highlight a few, a few key points. Um, the first three sections deal with those questions of, those teenage questions of how do I fit in? Um, so first of all, how independent am I? Um, the GOI 3 actually says that uh, the HEF has to provide an independent perspective on risks. Um, and, and it says there has to be an appropriate segregation of duties from first line. And what we do in the APN is elaborate further on that, saying that uh, the role is one of oversight and review and providing an independent opinion. And further to that, we have to uh, ensure that the board that we're reporting to understands that uh, we, we're, as a HEF, we're acting in our role um, in terms of the, the act and as a professional rather than as an employee. So, so that's very important and often can be, become difficult in practice, especially if you're an employee rather than a consultant. Um, next question, do I have to do everything myself? So this is relevant because there's a very broad scope of, of uh, requirements that the HEF has to provide an opinion on from, um, from reserving and capital to reinsurance, pricing, um, uh, policies, and so on. And, and in, in, some, in many cases, the HEF won't have deep experience or won't have time, especially, uh, to provide an opinion on all those things. So we do elaborate that the HEF has to be one person. In fact, that, that, that's, uh, that's defined in the regulations. But the HEF can rely on other suitably qualified people in their team um, or, or, or external uh, to, to provide some of the support in this role and some of the oversight and opinion. Uh, what qualifications do we need? Um, as, as Jaco said, uh, you do, um, according to the GOI, you have to be a member of FASA, uh, you have to be a FASA, um, and you have to have appropriate qualifications and experience. And in terms of the APN, uh, you do need the appropriate practicing certificates. So, and, um, so, so in other words, if you've got a limited practicing certificate, uh, you, you've got to, you have the responsibility to make sure that a, any role that you take on as a HEF um, doesn't go beyond the, the scope that both your experience and your certificate uh, would enable. Um, of course, um, yeah, as, as Yako said, there is this, uh, we do have the transitional arrangement until April uh, 2020, but the, 
there still is the onus on you before taking on a half role to make sure that you appropriately experience to take on that role, even if you have a certificate. Um, you, you have, it's, it's your responsibility to make sure uh, that you've got the appropriate experience. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll take you through a few uh, short parts of the, of the contents. Uh, the GOR requires that, we, that the HEF provides an opinion on the adequacy of the technical provisions and the SCR, um, and the guidance provides detailed, uh, uh, detailed recommendations in terms of what to look at in terms of the data, the assumptions, and the method. Um, in addition, we, uh, the, the HEFs required to express an opinion on the financial position of the insurer and dividends, proposed dividends. Um, and in this case, the, the APN advises to look at the, current, um, the impact on current solvency and projected solvency, um, stress tests, um, and, and, um, the HEF, and, and there's also additional guidance given on our role in, in terms of the author and risk monitoring. Um, they have also re required to express an opinion on policies uh, related to, to asset liability management, underwriting, and reinsurance. And the guidance says that um, this should be annually or as required uh, by the board. Um, a, a very important point and quite contentious in our putting together the guidance was that we, we believe the HEF doesn't have to monitor compliance with this policy. That's more of an internal audit function. The HEF's role is, is to provide opinion on the actuarial appropriateness of the policy. Um, the HEF's also required to assess the adequacy of reinsurance arrangements from an actuarial um, point of view, and, the, and the, the, the APN gives guidance on how to do that. Um, another, another area which required some clarification is that uh, the GAI requires the HEF to evaluate and provide advice on the actuarial soundness of T's and C's of insurance products. And we had to seek uh, clarity from re the regulator as to whether that, that actually includes pricing um, and product development. And the answer was affirmative, yes, it does. So um, there is quite detailed guidance in the APN on the factors to consider in, in providing that opinion. Um, the remaining parts of the guidance, uh, TCF allocation and pro of, of profit uh, and allocation of profits reviews in particular, are mainly relevant for life insurers. So um, we do preface the at, at the beginning of the guidance note. We do um, we do advise that have should be um, should apply the, the principles as relevant for for life and non-life insurers. Um, okay, so moving on to APN 401, which we're busy uh, refreshing at the moment. Um, the current version, which is, is, which is still current, is a bit outdated because it refers to particular regulations and accounting standards which, have, which are and have uh, moved on. So basically, uh, we're, doing, we're doing a refresh of the guidance. We've already uh, published... Uh, the guidance for public comment and received comment. So we're busy incorporating the public comment now. Um, really, um, the APN applies to uh, reserving or establishing technical provisions for non-life insurers and non-insurance <coughs> entities using uh, non-life principles, for example, motor, uh, motor maintenance plans. 
and it applies for statutory and financial and other purposes, for example, commutations. Um, the, 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 the changes to form and content in terms of the, the guidance. The, the changes to form, um, it's more generic. We, we haven't used, uh, referenced the specific, um, the specific regulations because we don't want it to become outdated. We've updated the terminology. Um, we've, there was quite a fair amount of detail which we thought was unnecessary and, and have removed, but we've also added new sections uh, to, to make it more current. Uh, so, for example, uh, we've added more specific and clear reference to ULA reserves, unallocated loss adjustment expense reserves, um, and we've, ad we've added guidance on, um, on how margins should, we, we would prefer that margins are specific and explicit uh, rather than, than implicit. Uh, we've added that a movement analysis is required, and we've added a section on reporting. Then the last, uh, the last guidance note, which uh, we actually started work on and actually went very far, uh, was what we call, uh, it's our APN 402, and um, it was intended as an overarching framework to give, act, um, to, to give actuaries in, in short-term insurance an overall uh, framework of which, which regulations, which actuarial guidance, and which accounting standards should be referred to when doing your work. Um, we, we believe it's a very useful framework, but as we were developing it, and based on the feedback we got, we realized that it would become outdated almost the minute it was published, <laughs> and, um, and that it probably wouldn't work as, a, as an APN, because we don't have the resources to be updating it constantly. So what we've decided to do is actually to publish it instead as an article um, on the ESSA website, um, and then possibly to do a refresh from time to time. So that is the work that we've been doing, and, and thank you very much to all of you on, on the uh, Professional Guidance Committee, because there's been an incredible amount of hard work that's, that's gone into these over the last few years. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, first question, what percentage of current practicing certificate holders work at consultancies? I could tell you, um, we have the numbers, I did, I'd have to think off the top of my head. I'd say less than half, um, but that's, I'd have to go and check the actual numbers. I'm happy to update the slides with that percentage because the slides will be shared with you following this event, so I'm, I'm more than happy. There's no, there's nothing secret about that. I, you know, I'd have to check the numbers. I don't know exactly. I don't know off the top of my head, but I would imagine it's less than about half, I'd say. How will the CPD requirements of 10 hours be adjusted for outcomes-based CPD? Right, so so the the requirement will be that you comply with ASSA first. So it's fundamentally the same as it was in the past. So you need to comply with ASSA CPD formal CPD requirements as a fellow. Over and above that, we want you to demonstrate ten hours. If you know, if you want to act as a half, you need to demonstrate ten hours. So really, what that means is, if you are on outcomes based, you will comply with outcomes based, and you will maintain your logs in that fashion, but the 10 hours is a requirement over and above that, so it doesn't negate or conflict with that, it's really you demonstrating that you've done 10 hours of valid CPD. 
uh, or ten, yeah, ten hours of professional development over the years. So it it remains an over and above requirement. It doesn't change because we move from hours-based CPD to outcomes-based CPD. Um, what's the demographic breakdown of the 28 PC holders, race and sex? So it's very skewed. So we have, out of the 28, I think there are one or two uh, non-white practicing certificate holders. So it's very skewed in that regard. Uh, in terms of gender, again, I will gladly add these numbers to the slides. Um, it's definitely skewed as well, not not to the same extent. Um, and I'm, I'm again, I'm sort of guessing at the numbers here, not having checked that explicitly, but prior. But I think it was probably in the order of about five um, female practicing certificate holders. So definitely skewed there. And, and I'm actually glad that question was asked. It's a big you know, the transformation as an initiative for the actuarial society is an important um, initiative for short-term insurance as well. And, you know, from this year, you know, I've stepped into the role as chair this year. We have made, you know, it one of the top priorities of the practicing area because clearly that number needs, that number needs to be transformed. The number of practicing certificate holders is to some extent a barometer. Um, and yeah, we would like uh, over time to see that number move materially. And then I think I ran out of time for more questions. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, and Lisa, we'll definitely be passing the questions on to you guys. Uh, maybe then in one of the newsletters uh, of ESSA, maybe the, there could be some answers. Yeah, I think maybe just to point out that some of those numbers you've asked today, like I said, I've added them to the slide, but the intention, as I mentioned earlier, is actually we want to publish those on an ongoing basis going forward because it, uh, it, we wanted to get the level of attention and, and dedication from the industry that it deserves. So those were very good questions. Thank you. Okay.